that. There we go. I had some feedback that you want to see my face. I don't know why, but that's your call. Jason, are we recording? We're good. All right. Let's pray. God, thanks for this morning. Thank you that we can be here and that we can open scripture, that we can read about who you are. God, thank you for the word that you have revealed yourself to us so that we we might know who you are. God, we love you. We thank you for all that you're about to do in our hearts in these next moments. Amen. All right, so this morning is going to be a weird one. Um, It's weird because I'm going to do something very different. Um, This series, so this is the second week. Last week we started the series, and, and the idea behind it is that we're dealing with seven very core essential elements of doctrine. So what we believe, why we believe it, and why it's important. So last week we started with the scriptures, and we looked at everything that we need to understand God, to understand salvation, to understand how to live, and how to be equipped for the world comes from this book. And so we talked about its authority. We talked about its inerrancy. In other words, that there are no mistakes in it. We talked about uh, its authenticity. And what was the fourth one? Ah, thank you. Someone was paying attention. And the sufficiency. So again, everything is found in it. And so then we looked at why is that important? Well, every other aspect moving forward in these next six weeks are enforced with this. And so that's why we started with Scripture, and now we're going to go and look at at God, and we're going to determine why we believe what we believe about God. But what I'm going to do is instead of going through it and explaining it and looking at the verses and then saying why it matters, we're actually going to flip that. We're going to say, why does this matter first? And then we're going to read what our statement says, and then I'm going to just be bouncing all over Scripture. And I'm actually not going to explain very much as much as just read the Scriptures and show why we believe these things, why they're true. So, I think this thing is worse for breathing than the other one. Oh, man. Okay. Let's give us a minute. So, uh, why... Why does it matter what we think about God? So I asked a question last week that uh, is important to consider and also has implications for it. So often we kind of think, doesn't it just matter? Isn't it just about Jesus? As long as we uh, submit to Jesus, isn't that the only thing that matters? What I said last week and what I'll say this week is that's the starting place. That's the starting place of everything. Is Once we realize that we have need of Jesus in our life, and we submit to him, that's where our spiritual journey begins. But if that's where it also ends, and we don't go beyond that, then we're ignoring so much of what God has taught us and shown us. And what the danger can be then is that we start to create uh, our theology based on what we think, what we uh, experience in our day-to-day lives, and what we logically think should be. But the problem is, what we often end up doing then is we often end up creating a God that suits our needs, not worshiping the one true God. Um, I was talking with Randy this last week, and um, he said this several times to me, is he says, don't put God, don't put God in a box. 
is we so like to have everything tied up neatly with a nice little, you know, like packaged nicely and a nice little bow and ribbon on top. And then this is, this is the way it is. It's simple. The problem is we're dealing with the creator of the universe who created me. And if he created me and if he created you and if he created the world, then how are we ever going to wrap all that up really neatly and nicely? We're only able to understand so much. And, and sometimes that's frustrating. Sometimes that's difficult. Sometimes that makes us question a lot of things. But at the same time, is you would never want to worship a God that you could fully comprehend and understand because that's not God. That's a peer. God is completely other. God is completely different than a peer. He's someone who is capable of far more than we could ever imagine and understand. So why does it matter what we believe about God? Because if we don't have a proper and healthy understanding of who God is, we can start getting sucked down some really weird, really incorrect theologies that start to really change how we view God how we view Jesus, how we view uh, our role as Christians in the world, and all of a sudden we can be worshiping not the one true God, but our own creation of a God. And that's dangerous. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to read about who God is. We're going to look at the, the three aspects of, of the Trinity, and I'm not going to explain that sufficiently. I'm just going to let you know that's not going to happen because I'm incapable of that. But then we're going to look at Scripture and we're going to read various Scripture passages that show this is how God has revealed himself to us. This is how we can know who God is because he has said this about himself. So none of this that I'm going to say now are my own thoughts or my own words, but are actually what Scripture has taught us and what Scripture says. So um, we've been using uh, the AGC's website. If you don't know what that is, that's the Associated Gospel Churches of Canada. That's the grouping of churches that we belong to. And so we have seven major doctrinal points in there, and they've been defined uh, for us. And so when I say that this is the definition, this is, if you Google the definition of God, you're going to find a million different things. This is uh, what our association has sat down um, We've really worked hard at wording these things and then supporting them with Scripture. There are, of course, many different types of churches with different beliefs all over the place. And I want, I want to state this over and over and over as we go through this series, is there's lots of room to agree to disagree in many things. There's many secondary issues where you can think one thing and I can think another, and that's fine. We can worship together. We can be united together. We can have the same purpose in life. We can work together in the same church. But when it comes to some of these very core central things, these are the things that we want to hold tightly and we will not compromise on. So here's what our statement says about God. God is the creator and sovereign Lord of all. The Lord our God is one God who eternally exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three have the same perfect nature and attributes. Each person of the Godhead is worthy of the same worship, confidence, and obedience. So I'm going to unpack that just a little bit before we get to the kind of the Trinity aspect of it, because that's where a lot of, uh, a lot of contention exists and where a lot of differences of opinion uh, exist. But let's just deal with this first sentence. It says, God is the creator and the sovereign Lord of all. 
So why do we start there? Well, when you open your Bible, which we've already read, to the very, verse, the very first verse in Scripture, what does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's where we start. So this last week, I got the opportunity to uh, be up on a roof with Merv. And uh, if you want, first of all, for your body to really hurt, but secondly, to just like laugh a lot, just go hang out with Merv for a few days. Um, and we were talking about, you know, some silly things and some very serious things. And we were talking about uh, kind of faith journey at one point. And he said this. He said, if we open the Bible and that first verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, if we throw that out, then we might as well throw everything else out. And that's exactly right. Is if we can't submit to the fact that there is a God who created the entire universe and has created all of us, then how are we ever going to move into some kind of an agreement about anything? So we start by saying he is the creator. And I talked very briefly about this last week, but Genesis 1, where we learn about how, uh, let me say it differently, where we learn about the creation. That's, there's not that much written there. And maybe, maybe you have uh, kind of struggled with this and you've been like, oh, but I want to know how God created. I want to know all the intricacies of, of what he did and when and, uh, and all these things. And it, it just doesn't seem like there's enough written there. And while it's alluded to all throughout scripture in various places, there's just not enough information given. And I said, I think that's for a reason. And the reason that I think that is, is because God's not as concerned about showing how he created the world, but that he is the creator of the world. That he is the creator of all life, of mankind, of animals, of plants, everything that we see. If God wanted to, he could have written, you know, chapters and chapters and chapters about how he created each individual thing and, and why he chose to do that. But at the same time, would we ever get a sufficient answer for that? How can the created say to the creator, how did you do this? Explain it to me. Right? Those of you who have children, you have grown up with this where your child asks a very complicated question. And before you can answer that question, you have to answer about 30 other questions leading up to something to get there. And our life, as we grow closer to God, is really that kind of a journey where we ask God a question and God says, hang on, I got, I got, we got to back up. And I want to deal with some other things first. And some other things, and some other things. And sometimes, I have this belief that we're never actually even going to get that question answered because by the time we get to that point, we'll realize just how irrelevant that question actually is. There's so much more that we need to understand, and all of it is found in Scripture. So God is the creator, and then the sovereign Lord of all. What does it mean that God's sovereign? So this point of doctrine is in here because we believe this to be of vital importance, that God is sovereign. What does that mean? Well, simply, uh, the simple answer for this is that God knows all things he has ordained them to be. So in some ways, what we need to do is we need to recognize with humility that I'm not as powerful as I like to think that I am. Is that God has planned all through Scripture, and we read it, and we see his plan for salvation, his plan for the church, what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to live. All those things are written for us, and I cannot ruin those plans. I am not powerful enough to overturn God or to overthrow what he wants to do. We read it already, but in Job 
Chapter 42, Job says to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now again, Job says that only after going through a lot of difficulty and questioning and seeking answers for many things, a lot of which God doesn't really actually answer, but asks different questions back. Job finally comes to the end of himself himself and recognizes that God will do what God has planned to do. And we can either fight that or we can get on board with that. So often in our lives, we try to understand everything about, all the details about everything before we choose to enter into something. But the reality with God is, if we try and understand every bit of his character and everything that he's ever going to do, and if we demand answers for all of the things, we're never going to put faith and trust in him. Because there's just always going to be another question. And I'm not talking that we just blindly accept things that seem to be crazy. This is why we started last week with the scriptures. The scriptures exist to show us and to explain to us and to clarify who God is. Why he has created us, what his purpose is for our lives. There's lots of en- information and answers found in Scripture. But at some point, we have to come to this realization that if God created all of this, then he, of course, is capable of sustaining it. And he, of course, can have plans and purposes that me, one person in this whole earth, can't just ruin and destroy. God is sovereign over everything. We read it already again, but Matthew 10, uh, 29 to 31, Jesus answers it from a slightly different perspective. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. God knows exactly who you are because God's created you. God loves you desperately. God's gifted you uniquely. All of these things are his plan for us. So he is the creator and the sustainer. All right, let's, I was going to say briefly, but this won't be brief. Let's deal with, uh, with the, three, the three persons in the Trinity here. There are a lot of analogies uh, that can be helpful in trying to wrap our minds around three separate persons in one because we just can't that just doesn't work right the math doesn't add up there and and so there's all kinds of different analogies and and i was going to give you uh a couple of them or or thought about giving a couple of them and then i realized that all of them are insufficient all of them break down at some point and the danger of what happens is when we decide that we're we're going to use an analogy to understand something like the Trinity, is we start to invest too much time in that analogy, and when the analogy breaks down, we forget to move on past that, and we go, but see, this doesn't make sense because. So let me, I'll just give you one little example of this. Is some people will say, okay, so three separate persons, but in one. So, so myself, so I'm Greg, one person, but I'm also a husband and a father and a pastor. So I'm also these three things. And so it's like, okay, well, that makes some good sense. There's some logic to that. Except when we dive into that analogy really far, it fails at so many levels because I'm still only one person in one person. I just have three different 
rolled. Actually, I have a lot more than three, and so do all of you. That's actually a, a wrong teaching called modalism, which is this idea that there's one God, but there's several aspects of him that are, that are talked about in Scripture. But what Scripture teaches, and we're going to show this, is that there's actually three in one. Not three aspects of one, but three in one. And we're, why is that important? Well, we'll deal with that in, in a moment here. Some have argued, though, that uh, this idea of Trinity is not a biblical concept. It's hard to actually come to that conclusion when you read through Scripture. I think the reason that people do is because the word itself, Trinity, is not found in the Bible. But just because the word isn't found in the Bible doesn't mean that the idea of the Trinity is not all present throughout. So I want to read to you one verse. We already read it, but... We're going to read it again because what it does is in this, well, it's two verses that I'm going to read, but one is just context. Uh, in this one verse, we find all the elements of the Trinity in here. So in 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, Peter writes this. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of, dis of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Here's verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. In one verse, you have three different, the three different members of the Trinity mentioned. Right there. So Peter acknowledged this, and, and you find this all through the New Testament, uh, often not as clearly and concisely in just one simple verse, but when you read through s passages or groupings of verses over and over, you see this happening over and over and over and over again. But then some will argue again and say, okay, but that's only a New Testament thing. That's not present in the Old Testament. So, so that, that contradicts itself. But again, we looked last week at the Scriptures, and what is the whole point of the Scriptures? The whole point of the Old Testament is that it points us to whom? So when we read in Isaiah 7:14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Is the whole of the Old Testament points to these prophecies of the Messiah coming who will be the son of God and yet God. It's all through the Old Testament. Can you ignore the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Well, right now I'm, I'm just finished uh, reading through Samuel. Now I'm going into Kings. And so that's where my mind immediately went. It's like, what about 1 Samuel 11 where, where Saul is made king and all of a sudden the Spirit of God rushes on him and he prophesies and declares truth. What happens when David becomes king and the Spirit of God is on David and he accomplishes all these great and amazing things through his spirit. In fact, in Psalm 51, a very familiar psalm of repentance where David has made some very poor decisions and he's repenting of it, right? We know uh, the song, right? Create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. And he says, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. It's right there. It's right there. All through Old Testament and New Testament, you see these varying, the three uh, persons of the Trinity, right? The three persons that are in one. Now again, my role is not to try and explain how that logically works, because I don't know. 
But what I do know is if a God created me from the dust, then certainly he can exist three in one. Just because something's difficult to understand doesn't make it not true. Just because something is too hard for our minds to comprehend doesn't mean that it's not true. And so this is why we started with Scripture. This is why we go back to Scripture over and over and over. So let's start with the Father. Here's the definition that we've written for this. God the Father loves the world. He sent his Son into the world to save sinners. He raised Jesus from the dead, exalted him, putting all things under his power, and together with him has sent the Holy Spirit. So let me read to you some Scripture to back that up. We'll just start in the most famous Bible verse ever because it's just on everyone's memory. John 3.16 says what? For God so loved the world that he did what? That he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish and have eternal life. 1 John 4.14, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, says this, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. 1 Peter 1.21 says, Who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Philippians 2.9-11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. John 14, 26, and, and you'll see all three are in this verse as well. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all these things and bring to you your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now this morning, I don't actually want to deal with, at least not very much, because you always have to preach the gospel a little bit. But in a couple of weeks, we're going to deal with redemption as, as the whole service. We're going to deal with why Jesus' death on the cross was the only thing that was sufficient to pay the penalty for our sins and give us an opportunity for eternal life with God. We are going to deal with that at length. But what we read here in these verses and, and what we read all through scriptures, this is God's plan that he would send his son into the world to be a ransom for many. Right from the beginning, this is his plan, that Jesus would come, that he would become fully man and fully God. There's another thing that we can't really grasp, and that we can't understand. But yet, and I'll explain that further, that's why his death on the cross makes it sufficient so that our sins can be forgiven. God the Father has planned all of this for us in his sovereignty. Why this is important is because in theological circles today, there's becoming this, this belief more and more and more that God is reactive and not proactive, and he's just responding to things that we're doing. But that goes against what Scripture teaches because Scripture is showing us all through the Old Testament that here's God's plan for salvation. Here's what he's going to do. Here's how he's going to forgive sin. Here's what's going to happen. God has planned all of these things. So that's the Father. Then, specifically to the Son, 
This is the definition. God the Son became God incarnate as Jesus Messiah. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life. He was crucified, raised bodily from the dead, and ascended into heaven where he reigns as king and serves as our high priest and advocate. He will return as king of kings, lord of lords, to set up his earthly kingdom. So again, when we think of the three persons in one, sometimes we can get lost in that. And when we go to the New Testament, we can see Jesus born and we can think that Jesus shows up on the scene there. But that's actually not what Scripture teaches us. In John 1, 1 and 2, it says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the, be- or he was in the beginning with God. And then in verse 14, the clarification comes, The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus existed with God the Father and with the Holy Spirit right from the beginning. It's not as though God was reactive when we went, oh, there's sin now. How are we going to do this? I guess I'll make this way. God had plans and purposes, and Jesus was with God right from the beginning. Matthew 1, 22 to 23 says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says it this way, For our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then in the very last, last few verses of the Bible, Revelation 22, 12 and 13, Jesus says this, Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So we have God the Father, and we have his plan, what his role, what he does, and then we have the Son and how the Son existed with the Father and the Spirit in the beginning, but that he was the one that would die on the cross for our sins, that we would have the opportunity to go be with him. And for the most part, those two are not nearly as disputed over, but the person of the Holy Spirit is where it sometimes gets fuzzy and sometimes gets messy. Depending on the, the church tradition that you maybe uh, have come out of, I grew up in Steinbach, right, the Mennonite Mecca of the world, pretty conservative place, uh, very conservative place. Um, and this idea of the Holy Spirit, yes, we, we, we talked about it, but we talked about it briefly because the other two aspects are a lot easier to comprehend a little bit. The Holy Spirit seems this unpredictable, uncertain, mystical type of thing. And, and, and I know that when I went to Bible college, that's where I really, really struggled was with my doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And I realized I didn't really have one because I hadn't considered these things enough. Well, here's what our statement says about the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ in all that he does. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. At the moment of salvation, he regenerates, baptizes, indwells, gifts, and empowers for Christ-like living and service. 
that's actually a very good statement about it because what it does, and you'll see this in, in a minute here as we read through Scripture, it just breaks down what his role in our life is. And I've said this over and over and over, but the Holy Spirit exists to declare Christ. That's his role, primarily. Everything else falls under that. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So when somebody recognizes their need for saving, that doesn't come because me and you were so convincing in our arguments to them that they needed Jesus. That comes because the Holy Spirit has convicted and put on their hearts what is true and what is right. When we submit to Christ and when we become a Christian, when we make him Lord and Savior of our life, he regenerates or he makes us new. He baptizes, indwells, and gives us gifts for Christ-like living and service. Let me read to you some verses that show this. It's a bit of a longer passage, but John 16, 8 to 15 says this. Jesus is speaking to his disciples here, and he says this. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit will put the focus on finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. When the Holy Spirit is at work within us, teaching us and showing us and revealing us, and when he's speaking through us, it all points to Jesus. And again, we talked about this last week. This is why it can be so dangerous when people try and speak on behalf of God and say, the Holy Spirit said this, and they tell you something that goes against with what Scripture teaches, is that goes against what the Holy Spirit's role and, and duty is in our lives. He exalts Christ. He doesn't exalt me. And that's so important that we understand. I am not some kind of modern-day apostle that I speak on behalf of God. What I do is I open up that which he has already spoken, and I just declare it, because he has already said these things to us. Titus 3, 5, and 6 says this, He saved us not because of words done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 to 13 says this. He's talking about all the various uh, giftings and people within the church. And so he says this, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. Romans 8, 9 to 14, Paul writes this, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And then lastly, Galatians 5, to 25. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So we see all through Scripture, there's Father, there's Son, and there's Spirit. There's three, but they are in one. The statement that I made at the beginning is that all three of those members of the Trinity are equal and are worthy of worship and honor because they're one God. It's not three gods. It's not... um, Three different personality traits of one God. This is three persons existing in one. And we can say, well, why does that matter? I think it matters because this is how God has shown himself to be. And if we are to be his ambassadors, if if you're a Christian, your role is to be his ambassador to the world, then we have to represent him the way that he tells us to, not how we want to. Not what we think is easier, not what we think maybe makes more sense, but we say, here's who God says he is, and that is what I need to declare to you. Now again, back to a very, very simple question is, do you have to believe the Trinity, and do you have to understand all of these things to be a Christian? I think again, we, that question tries to tie everything up really nice and neatly with a little package box that is maybe not the right question to answer or the right question to ask. When we become a Christian, when we recognize, when the Holy Spirit has convicted us and we've recognized, man, I need Jesus. I am insufficient on my own. I need him. At that point, the Holy Spirit then indwells us and then he declares everything about Jesus. And so we learn and we mature and we grow. So can you not understand a lot of this stuff and be a Christian? Yes, theoretically, because all you need to do is recognize that you need Jesus. But at the point of conversion, you were given the Holy Spirit so that we would mature and grow. And if we refuse to mature and refuse to grow, then we're not living by the Spirit. We're not doing what God has called us to do. We're not accepting God for who he is. We're recognizing that, yes, I need Jesus, but I still also don't want to have to submit to him. And we can't have it both ways. If we recognize we need Jesus, then we make a commitment to him, and then we allow him to change us. And yes, that takes time, and that's a process. I said it last week, is when you become a Christian, you don't immediately get good doctrine. You just don't. It takes time. We have to study, and we have to learn. But so why is it important that we learn and understand these things? Again, because this is how God has shown to us who he is. And so it then becomes our responsibility to learn. If I want to worship God, if if I think God is worthy of all worship, if I think that through the blood of Jesus I am saved, then I'm going to pour my life into this understanding of who God is so that I can honor him and bring him glory because he is worth it. 
if he doesn't change my life, then I haven't understood who he is. Now again, that doesn't mean that we don't go through very difficult times or that we don't grow a little bit today and then forget everything that we learn tomorrow. That's part of living. That's part of being a human. But the question is, are we constantly going back to saying, God, I need to learn more of you through your word that you would reveal to me so that I know how to live, what my purpose in life can be and how I can grow and mature in you. This is why we hold so tightly the three in one. This is why we hold so tightly that God is the creator and the sovereign Lord of all. Do you need to understand all of this completely and be a Christian? No, but also yes. I know that's very wishy-washy. But that's the reality of it is if we look at things just from a salvation point of view, then yes, all we need is Jesus. But if we look beyond that one moment and we look at that God has purpose and meaning in our life and that he has called us to mission and to go declare his name to the world, then no, it's, it's only the beginning of a journey of how we learn and grow and become more like Christ. And as we learn more of these very core important things, we'll start to see that this starts to define how I live and what I do and how I become Jesus' ambassador. Yes, there's lots of room to agree to disagree on, and there's lots of things where we can say, you know what, that's not really important. These issues are not those. These issues are central. These are things we need to understand if we want to grow and if we want to mature in our Christianity. At the very end of the day, as God gets to be who God is because God is that, not because I want him to be that. So I'm going to surrender and I'm going to submit to that and I'm going to say, God, would you show me and reveal to me more of yourself so that I would understand you better, so that I can represent you better. Many, many people in the world are misrepresenting Christ, misrepresenting God, and people are looking at that and saying, I don't need any of that. I don't even want any of that. So why is it so important that we are ambassadors of the one true God, not our own view of God? so that people would come and they would see who he is, not someone's version of him. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have written all of these things in Scripture and that so much of what I've even spoken here has just been reading what you have declared to us plainly. God, I don't pretend to understand how to process three in one. I don't pretend to understand to know how you created and how you love us and sustain us and how you were sovereign over everything. But I do believe that you have said these things about yourself and so they are true. And so God, as we consider that we have a role to declare Jesus to the nations through the way that we act and the way that we live, the way that we speak, God, would you give us a desire to know you more intimately so that we represent you correctly to the nations? God, there are many who have misrepresented you. And there are many that have done a lot of damage and there are many that have been hurt and are very confused about God and faith and the church, what all those things mean. And so God, would we 
go to your word and would we study these things so that we could understand how to repair some of that damage so that we could represent you well so that people could see not us but that they would see you in us God thank you for all that you were doing in our lives as we look forward to the next issues that we need to hold very closely to us we just pray that you would reveal these things through your word to us that we would understand them more and more every day God we love you help us to submit to who you are not to who we want you to be amen we're just going to play a, a little video um, feel free